listening to the Art Problems Podcast, episode 12. I'm your host, Hanny Johnson. This is the podcast where we talk about how to get more shows, grants, and residencies. And today we are going to talk about artificial intelligence, how it works, whether you can use it to do things like save you time while writing artist statements or anything else you need to write, and some of the ethical concerns around using it. Now, this is going to be a deep dive, but before we dig in, I'm going to do something that storytellers and journalists normally don't do, which is to give away the ending. So if you're wondering whether ChatGPT, this is the platform in news headlines recently that generates answers to any question you might ask, whether this platform is going to be able to write all the material you wish somebody else could do because you don't want to do it, I am here to tell you that it cannot. It might give you a starting point, and that's really useful, but AI doesn't replace a human being, at least not yet. (laughs) But that said, it is so incredibly good at producing template-like language. I feel like I'm going to look back on this conversation and either like marvel or be embarrassed by what I'm saying right now. Like, remember those news headlines where the broadcasters come on TV and say, there's this new technology called the World Wide Web, and soon it's going to be in people's homes everywhere. And you kind of look at it and you're like, ha, 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 they were so naive. That's what I'm talking about here. The technology seems that transformative. And like anything that transformative, it comes with a lot of challenges. So there's so many ethical challenges to this. I don't even want to get into them all because like scams being amongst the more scary, but there's so much and it's a whole other podcast. And yes, there are safeguards, but they can be beaten. What I really wanted to talk about for a little bit here is intellectual property Because last week, someone I follow on Twitter complained that AI was plagiarization and it was wrong to call it anything else. Two days later, ChatGPT, the platform that generates the answers to the questions you ask it, started rolling out pro pricing options for its platform at $42 a month. I mean, it's been around since November, so that's not very long. It was always part of the plan. I think it must have been. Visual Arts AI those apps were already charging. So Midjourney starts at $10 a month and goes up to $60. Dali starts at $10 and goes up from there too. ChatGPT is quite expensive for any normal person. Now, I want to talk about this plagiarism subject because I think the problem is much larger than people not getting credit for their work, which frankly is already a ubiquitous issue. The reason that plagiarism creates so many issues is that it prevents us from evaluating the integrity of the content generated, a task that's become increasingly difficult over the last 30 years and promises to get a lot worse. Like all of the fake news that we see now, all of that stuff can be generated very easily and it's distributed very easily. And that distribution comes with challenges that we are not quick enough to debunk things that are inaccurate. And now we have AI, which is only going to speed things up. And AI is also only as good as the information it uses as source material. And since we don't know where the sources come from, We don't have enough information to evaluate it. Authorship tells us perspective, bias, trustworthiness. Nobody is going to believe an article written by the disgraced journalist Jason Blair. He made up dozens of stories. He's not credible. 
or in more art world centered examples, we can expect Artnet and Artsy to put a positive spin on most market news that pertains to the sales on their platform because they're a sales platform. That's what they are first. They're not journalism first. It's not, they're not in the game just to distribute knowledge about art. They're there to sell things. And if we don't see those biases, then if we don't see things like the publishing date, that gives us context about how relevant the information is and like when, what the context was when it was published. We don't have an, enough information to evaluate what we see. So in short, experts are still needed. And we need better ways of crediting source information so that artists and writers still get paid for the work they're doing. So in journalism, the term syndication refers to a fee that a writer gets when their work is distributed by multiple publications. And these fees, by the way, have largely disappeared. In art, we think about this in terms of artist resale rights, licensing, and economies that may, that the blockchain makes really easy, right? So if places like ChatGPT can call material from wherever they please and charge for it, which they can, the material should be sourced and, in my opinion, it should have a cost. The only way I can think to make that happen would be wide adoption of blockchain technology, but I would imagine there are people who think about this a lot more than me and probably have additional thoughts on this. Now, in some ways, I am still most excited by the world's first chatbot, Eliza, which to me just sort of remains the most sophisticated. That program was developed in the 1960s at MIT, and it would look for the key word in a user's statement and then reflect it back in the form of a simple phrase or question. And when that failed, it would fall back on a set of generic prompts like, please go on or tell me more. So Eliza was programmed to interact in the style of a psychotherapist, and it was fairly convincing. It gave the illusion of empathy, even though it was just using simple code. And people would have long conversations with a bot that sounded a lot like therapy sessions. And what I like about Eliza is that because it exists to ask questions, it doesn't have the ability to share false information. It's a reflection of ourselves. And that's why we instinctively like it. It tells us about ourselves. And in this way, it's like art. Art is a reflection of ourselves. And so I like I like the programs that are more like art. <laughs> but let's get down to the brass tacks here, which is I told you earlier that chat GTP can't do the writing and thinking for you, but I wanted to put this to the test. So I came up with boilerplate language for a body of work that a friend makes and then I also separately asked my Instagram followers to send me a couple questions they wanted answered by the bot. So we're going to cover both. So let's start with a statement. Here's what I plugged in. I make abstract weavings on canvas using oil paint as thread. Usually a simple shape or pattern emerges. Please write me an artist statement. And this is what the bot brought me back. As an artist, my focus is on creating abstract weavings on canvas using oil paint as thread. Through the manipulation of color and texture, I aim to create simple shapes and patterns that evoke a sense of movement and energy. I find inspiration in the natural world, particularly in the way that light and shadow play across surfaces. 
My work is an exploration of the interplay between form and color, and I hope that it encourages the viewer to see the world in a new and dynamic way. All right, so this is grammatically correct, which is an improvement on some statements for sure, but it's also an amalgam of statement cliches. And also notice that anything I didn't write specifically about the art could describe any art. So as an artist, my focus is on creating abstract weavings on canvas using oil paint as thread. That's pretty much verbatim what I wrote. So it got that right. And I know it describes the art. Next. My work is an exploration of the interplay between form and color, and I hope that it encourages the viewer to see the world in a new and dynamic way. That's completely generic. Your job as an artist is to distinguish your work from everybody else's. So your statement needs to do that too. So anytime we have something that could describe anybody's art, the statement is not working for you. So we know that there are real limitations to asking a chat program to come up with something for you. Now, the next question that I wanted to ask has nothing to do with artist statements. This was something that an Instagram user sent in to me. And that question that I plugged into chat GTP was, is there a stigma attached to artists who make on-demand prints? And this is the answer. There can be a perception that art created as on-demand prints is less valuable or less authentic than original, one-of-a-kind pieces. However, this perception is not universally held and can vary depending on the medium, the artist, and the context in which the prints are created and sold. Some artists and collectors view on-demand prints as a way to make art more accessible and affordable, while others may see them as a way to monetize an artist's work without the same level of investment in materials. And time is a one-of-a-kind piece. Ultimately, the perception of on-demand prints may depend on the perceived value of the artist, the quality of the prints, and the market for the artist's work. So this is correct, and I'm actually pretty happy with this answer because I think it's fairly thorough and concise. But I wanted to talk about the anxiety underlying this question, which has to do with the artist's desire to make money without cutting off the chance for representation. And in this world, there is no having your cake and eating it too. It doesn't exist. If you're using software like Art Storefronts, which offers print-on-demand services to artists, or you're on a marketplace like Sachi, you're not also going to show at a blue chip gallery because you're participating in two different marketplaces and they don't cross. The luxury fashion brand Louis Vuitton doesn't have its, like, patterns distributed through the home decor store Spoonflower, right? The whole point is that Vuitton costs an absurd amount of money because of its prestige and access to it is exclusive. So it's not doing anything that's print on demand. It's counter, uh, counterproductive. And yes, there can be a stigma attached to print on demand, which has to do with authenticity and value. But at its root, it's a class tension. Rich people like being around other rich people and poor middle class people can make them nervous. And the same is true for us. If you're just scraping by or you're middle class, it's not uncommon to feel uncomfortable around extreme wealth. And part of that is that our lifestyles are so different. Many artists can't afford vacations. Some collectors judge their wealth by the number of helicopter landing pads they have on their yachts, right? Like you're not going to be going to the same restaurants or taking the same trips. 
And sometimes that discomfort around this disparity turns to animosity because the tension underlying all of this is that it's actually counter instinctual. These class differences in some way, they are counter instinctual because what we want to do is form community. That too is our instinct. And when we can't do that, when there are tensions and uh, disparities that make that difficult, we feel angry about it. And that, my friends, is why we need dealers. These are the rare people who are just as comfortable talking to kings and queens and millionaires and billionaires as they are artists toiling away in the trenches. That is a very rare skill set. And so we need to, <laughs> we need to acknowledge that. Now, the next question that came into uh, my DMs through Instagram was, how can I find curators outside of my local network who focus on similar ideas, themes, and media? And this actually is a several-part answer that the uh, chatbot came, came back to me with. So I'm going to break it up into individual points. And this is the first point right here. There are a few ways to find curators outside of your local network who focus on similar ideas, themes, and media. Online platforms, websites such as Artsy, Curate, and Artspace showcase a variety of artists and curators from around the world. You can search for curators by name, theme, or medium to find those who align with your interests. Okay, so I'm not sure how helpful this is. This bot suggests using Artsy and Curator and Artspace to find artists and curators. And sure, you can find artists, but you can't find curators on these platforms, so it's not that helpful. Also, maybe you know something I don't know, but I can't find the platform Curate, at least an art platform with that name. So I don't know where this information is coming from, but it's obviously incorrect. So this is the second way that the chatbot has suggested getting connections to curators. Social media, many curators and artists have a presence on social media platforms such as Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Following curators and artists whose work resonates with you can be a good way to discover curators who align with your interests. <laughs> okay. Well, sure. Thanks so much, uh, ChatGTP. So social media is a means of connecting with curators, sure. I will say, though, that of all the art professionals out there using social media, curators may get the least from it and are thus less likely to use it, at least institutional curators, because these curators don't need to connect to collectors and they have a museum social media presence that, that exists to pr promote their work. So it doesn't mean that they don't use it to find artists, but there are also a lot of other ways to do that beyond Instagram. So it's less effective than I think many of us would like. And just as a disclaimer, yes, people do get connections to curators on Instagram. It does happen. But those are the caveats that I would, uh, would lay out. Now, this is the third suggestion from the chatbot. Professional associations. Joining professional associations such as the International Association of Curators of Contemporary Art, IKT, or the Association of Art Museum Curators, AAMC, can provide opportunities to connect with curators and gain insight into current trends and issues in the field. So 
This is a good one for connecting with curators, but these associations are for curators to connect with other curators, not artists to connect with curators. So they tend, you know, it's not going to be so good for, for artists to use them for connection. I also noticed that the network membership is not noticed, not for nothing, but it is useful for that. We have a curator database that invite curators to meet with members. We're not the only organization that does that. And so that seems like a pretty big gap in its knowledge. So the next one is coming up. Art fairs, art fairs, such as Art Basel Freeze or Venice Biennale are a great way to discover new artists and curators. They showcase a diverse range of artists, galleries and curators from around the world and can also be a good way to learn about emerging trends and movements. Okay, so I mean, art fairs don't really showcase curators. They show it case curated shows, but mostly there are curators who go there to, to the fairs to look for acquisitions for the institutions they work for. So it's actually a good place to do networking. It's just that the reasons are not really described that accurately. And finally, this is the last thing that this chatbot recommends. I'm just going to highlight it here so that we can, so we can have the Siri tell us about it. Conferences and symposia. Attending conferences and symposia that focus on contemporary art and curatorial practices can be a great way to connect with other curators and learn about new trends and ideas in the field. It's important to mention that networking is a key element in the art world, so it's always a good idea to attend events, galleries, and exhibitions and engage with other artists and curators. So I really like that the chatbot mentions networking as a key element in the art world because it is really important and it is a good idea to attend the events, the galleries, exhibitions, all that other stuff. Conferences and symposia, this might be the best way for academics and public artists to connect with other people. The trick, of course, is knowing which ones to attend. CAA is great for academics. Coda Works is great for public artists. You know, I'm sure there's more I've just mentioned too, but this is to give you a sense of where the chatbot really kind of falls short. Now, I'm not even sure that anybody is going to use this advice for art careers. This just happens to be my field. So of course, that's what I'm going to plug in. But the reason it doesn't work is the same reason that most coaching fails. That's because it's only going to give you basic principles. And the fact is, is that most of us don't have problems identifying the basic principles. It's actually following them. That's a problem because they're very simple steps. It doesn't mean it's easy to do. So Steve Magnus, a running coach that I've been obsessed with recently, laid out these principles in his book, Peak Performance. And I think they perfectly map to art. So here's what he said. Number one. Consistency trumps perfection. And, you know, my note to this would be it's how you learn. Be a minimalist, not a maximalist. That's number two. And basically saying here, like, if you do too much, if you try to do too much, you get way less done. That's true always. Number three, have a quiet ego. In other words, confidence in your art means that you, you can just let it speak on its own. Number four. Focus on the process, not the results. And what I what I think that means for us is that you want to focus on what you can see in front of you, not the result, which is often too far ahead to fully picture. If you break it down into steps, 
it is achievable. Number five, establish a secure but flexible identity. Basically, your art should evolve, but it should still look like you made it. Number six, stress plus rest equals growth. You know, if everything is easy, we don't grow. So we have to always be testing ourselves. And uh, if we don't take a break, we are, we're just going to exhaust ourselves. And then finally, number seven is embrace some discomfort. And there's a sweet spot in here between doing too little and doing too much. And that balance is really where the real work lies. And the unfortunate truth is that there's no one to really offload that self, that that work for you. You are your own manager. Anyway, on the subject of planning, I've gone through the artists that I've worked with and put together a list of common activities they've taken to move their careers forward. And I'm not, I'm not running that through ChatGPT. I'm releasing that on the next podcast. And I can't wait to share it with you because it's been a while since I've really taken stock of this. And I think you're going to be surprised with some of my observations. So I will see you next week. And I want to take this time to thank you for listening. If you like the show, please leave a review and share it with a friend. It really helps get all the valuable information I work to put together for for you to more artists out there who are just like you. You can find all of the links and names that I reference in this conversation at workshop.art slash podcast. Thank you for listening. If you like the show, please leave a review and share it with a friend. It really helps get that valuable information out to more artists just like you. You can find all of the names and the links that we reference in this conversation at workshop.art slash podcast.